turn over to Hebrews 12. We'll be continuing our sermon series in that book. For several weeks now, starting with Psalm 84, we have been looking at the way that God, the excellent way that God has placed us on if we are His people. It's a way from sin to Him. Out of our sin and misery to God's house in glory. That is the way of the Christian. Okay? He starts out in sin and misery, and then he goes to God's house in glory. We have seen that the principal exhortation of Hebrews is found in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This epistle, this letter to the Hebrews, is written to those believers among the those who believe among the Jewish people, those who had trusted in Christ and become Christians. Some of them had grown weary and discouraged because of the opposition that they faced from their family and from their leaders for following Christ. They received much affliction because of that. And so this letter spends the first ten chapters setting forth the superiority of Christ to the shadows of the Old Testament that represented Him. Those shadows had their place in their day. They were set forth to show the people that God saved through atonement, through the sacrifices for sin, the, the, the ultimate sacrifice, the blood of the covenant that would be shed by Jesus Christ. So he, present, he gave that to them until the time when Christ came. But after Christ came, to dismiss him who was the actual one who reconciles us to God was a great sin against God. And it left them in idolatry. They were not serving the true God. Jesus said, they don't know the Father if they don't know me. I'm the one that represents the Father. And if they reject me, then they reject the Father also. Now that he has come, you see, it would be foolish to return to those old shadows, even though they have more outward glory than the simple worship that we have in the New Testament. And for good reason that that's so, now we come before our risen Savior who is enthroned in glory at the Father's right hand. We're no longer trying to portray Him on earth as was done in the Old Testament. We are rather entering into fellowship with Him who is reigning in glory. Through word and spirit, He speaks to us and we know Him. We worship in spirit and truth. We're going to God's house in glory. We're on the pathway there. And we have a clear vision of the glory now that it has been revealed in Christ. A clearer vision, I should say. We run to His house then with our eyes on Him. As it says, we go looking unto Jesus. As we have seen, He is the author and finisher of our faith. The one who made it there from this sinful world to glory. And he went there with the whole church on his back, as it were. He went there taking all of us with him. He's the one who opened the way that none of us could open. He had to deal with the wrath of God against our sin. He had to deal also with our weakness 
and our rebellion and to, to save us from, from that as well to, by giving us the Holy Spirit. We look to His example as the one who endured the cross. We must bear our own cross, but it's nothing like His cross. He, he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before Him. The joy of bringing the whole church into His Father's house. And we look to Him to sustain and give us the strength that we need to endure to the end. Yes, we are to, uh, to, to go there forever. And then the third thing is that we look to Him to sustain us and give us strength to endure to the end. Those are things that we have seen. We can't do it in our own strength, but we trust in Him. Yes, we are to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and we're to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. It is a glorious pathway. That is what we're called to do. This talk about endurance is not without reason. This way, as wonderful and glorious as it is, is a difficult way. It's fraught with all kinds of difficulties and hardships. There is real danger. Like some of the Hebrews, we might be so discouraged and weary as to slacken our pace and even to get altogether off of the road. So this is a danger that is being addressed here, a real danger. Our text today gives us a fourfold remedy against this weariness. If you have become weary with God's way, this is for you. If you have slackened your pace, this is for you to get back on track and to go in the way that God has called us. I'll read our text now. It's Hebrews 12, verse 3 through 11. I read 1 and 2 already, and we'll pick up at verse 3. This is the holy and helpful word of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. See, it's a warfare going on. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for days chastened us as seemed best for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Praise God for his word. The words, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, make it clear that there are dangers that we face and hardships that can make us weary and discouraged when we follow the Lord, when we go in His way. The weariness and discouragement, though, here that is in view is the sort that causes us to falter and to slacken our way. 
Jesus was weary and discouraged at times. Indeed, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He lamented over Jerusalem and over the hardness of hearts and the sinners that he came to redeem. He was grieved by his disciples' slowness of heart to believe. But he did not falter. He did not slacken his pace. He did not stop going in the way when he had these difficulties. That is the danger that is in view here when it says, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It's a weariness that keeps you from going on. Before we look at the remedy, I want to explain why weariness and discouragement are so threatening to us. It is because, simply, the way is hard. Like, don't let anyone tell you if you become a Christian it will be easy. It will be hard. The way is hard, and it is a great deception to say anything otherwise. We are coming out of sin, and we're going to God. And that has all kinds of difficulties associated with it. It is hard to do. It is not easy to do. It is hard because sin does not want to let us go. It does not want to let you go. As long as we're in this world, though sin is defeated and we're following Christ, if we are redeemed through faith in Him, we still have corruption that remains in us. The Apostle Paul lamented about this. He said, who will deliver me from this body of death? I have to bear around this body of remaining corruption in me, this body of death. The road that we are on is a road of putting off sin and of coming to God and His righteousness by way of Christ. And sin wants to hang on to you as you go to God. It wants to drag you down. It wants to pull you away from following God. So again, Paul saw it as a burden that he bears, this sin that he bears. We are also called to bring the world around us to Christ, the whole world, to make disciples of all nations. And the world in its sin fights against us at every step. They do not come willingly. Many die in their sins and rebellion, refusing the call of the gospel. Not only does the world refuse to come, but it also makes every effort to keep us from going on the way. It would love to pull us aside, to discourage us in the way, and to turn us to another way than the way to the Lord. It wants us back. It does not want the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ to come. It's, a, it's the most loathsome thing to those who are in rebellion of all things. This makes the way hard because of persecution, because of rejection, because of temptation, and all the rest. Sometimes it comes to us sweetly as if giving us good advice. Don't go in this way. This will harm you. I care about you. I love you. You're ruining your life. I remember a man that had uh, been a heavy drinker and all of these things, and, and he repented and began to follow the Lord and trusted the Lord Jesus, and his friends gathered him together and said, you're wrecking your life because no longer was he a drunkard, no longer was he rebellious and all of these things. Perhaps the hardest part, though, is the opposition that comes from those who profess the, even, even the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, for the Jews, it was those who professed God as their God. And uh, we have those today, many who profess Christ that do not really know Him. They have an idol Christ. 
In other words, Christ that they have made in their own desires, according to their own desires. Not the Savior who came from heaven to save us from our sin, from the Father, but a Christ that they made up, that they use for whatever cause they want to pursue. And they're some of the most, most bitter enemies against those who are following in the way because they feel guilty when they see those who are saying, we have nothing before God. We have to trust in the Lord Jesus to save us. We cannot save ourselves. And they're wanting to have their causes and they're wanting Christ to be an example to them and not a real Savior. And so they become angry with us about these things. Other ones perhaps are following and saying, yes, He's the Savior. So since He saved us, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. We don't need to follow God because we're saved from our sins by Jesus. False gospel, turning the grace of God into license. So these are some of the hardest things that we struggle with. Jesus' hardest struggles were not with people that were outside, but people that professed the name of God. And so it is today. The way is also hard because the battle against sin is relentless. We must constantly strive against sin. There's not a day that we do not have to take up our cross, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. It's true that there are seasons of greater and lesser difficulty that God sometimes sweetens our way and gives us times of refreshment. He knows what we need. But then there's times that come that are of great darkness and clouds and hardship and difficulties. We'll never be able to rest, even in those sunny days, until we come into our Father's house at last. The way is hard, and we can feel like giving up at times, but we must go on. We must endure to the end. We must strive against sin until we come to the Father. That's what it says, isn't it? You become weary striving against sin, it says in, the, uh, in, in verse 4. So now that we have seen the real danger of weariness and discouragement, let's now look at the fourfold remedy we have in this passage. Four things that will help you endure this hard way that we're called to go. First, it will help you to endure if you consider what Jesus endured. Did he come here and have an easy time? It was quite the opposite. For consider him, verse 3 says, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. It often helps us to see how others have struggled in order to alleviate our own struggle. And certainly when it is the master himself, how much he endured. He had to bear the full onslaught of Satan himself. That raging and roaring lion who roams about seeking whom he may devour, trying to lead people into deception. Keep in mind that Jesus was here in our flesh so that he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. The temptation was something that he had to, to deal with. It was hard for him. He did not want to go and bear the cross because it's not something that anyone should even want to do. But he wanted to do it because it was the Father's will in order that he might save us. So he wanted to and he didn't want to. Satan tried to deceive him, to entice him, to discourage him, to drive a wedge between him and the Father. He used all of his tactics, but to no avail. We think that temptation is hard, but we give in to it before it gets really hard. The Lord Jesus never gave in to it, and the temptation kept coming and coming relentlessly, and He never yielded. Jesus also had to bear the hostility of a sinful covenant-breaking church. The highest court of the church, the Sanhedrin, hated Him 
and ordered that he should be crucified, that he was not fit to live on the earth, but should die the death of a great malefactor. They accused him and opposed him, called him a devil and a blasphemer and a deceiver. They chose a murderer instead of him when the option was given to them, a murderer and a robber. Jesus had to bear also disciples who were slow of heart to believe, who opposed him in the area where he needed the greatest support in his resolve to bear the cross and to go and endure that suffering for our sake. They even forsook him on the night that he was betrayed, and one of them betrayed him. Jesus' saving work demonstrates how difficult it is to bring sinners to God. To break through the barriers that separated God required Him to endure the cross and required Him to provide each of us with a new birth and new life in the Holy Spirit. The difficulty was so great that no one could do it. No one could even dream of doing it. He is the only one that could take on that task. As we have seen, He had by far the most difficult part. Now think about your part and His part in this whole thing of going in the way. What is His part? His part was to go as the pioneer, the author and finisher of our faith, and to break through those barriers, to make a way to God for people that had no way. He had to bear the cross. He had to endure all of that in order to go from this sinful world and people that He associated with as sinners to go to the Father. Jesus had to make the way. He is the way. But what do we have to do? We only have to go in the way that He made. And it's very hard. I'm not saying that it's easy. But what He did was entirely different and much more difficult than what we're called to do. It's not to say that it's easy for us, but Jesus said that uh, many do not endure. Many come on the road for a time and then leave it. And how shameful that is when He has made the way. How can we leave that way because of the difficulties when He has endured all the way to the point of death on the cross? Jesus had to bear the sin of His people in hell. We only, all, the worst that can happen to us is physical death. It's an entirely different matter. But if you are a child of God, it will help you very much if you consider what our dear Savior endured. What you must endure is very light compared to what he had to endure. That's why Paul, with all the afflictions he had, said that our affliction is light and momentary. You may have to endure to the point of death, but he had to endure hell for the entire church. It is a shameful thing if you cannot endure the road that he has opened by his own suffering and death. Now consider what he endured. That is the first remedy. Second, it will help you to endure if you remember that chastening is a proof that you're God's child, that you're God's son. Verse 5 through 8, charge us with forgetting this when we falter. He says, verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as to sons. My, sons do, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Is that true? That is true, is it not? You can tell which child belongs to which parent 
by looking to see who chastens that child, who comes when that child gets into trouble to correct that child and to set them back on track. Now, sadly, today, this illustration is weakened because Satan has so deceived us in these modern times as to believing it is wrong for parents to chasten their children. Many times, based on this standard, we might look about and conclude that a child has no parent, has no one that really cares for them, no one to correct them. And in a way, it's true. A child without discipline and correction is a child unloved. Such a child will be ruined. The Lord tells us so in in the book of wisdom in Proverbs. But God is the perfect father. He will not leave his children in their sin. When he adopts us, he finds us wallowing in our sin and filth and defilement. We're, We're wallowing in the mire and in the mud. And he's not the kind of father that leaves his children in that condition. Despite all of our screams and hollering and protesting and fighting, he will, begin, he will bring His Word to us and He will begin correcting us and changing us, training us, delivering us, washing us. He loves us too much to leave us in our wickedness and rebellion. His training of us is not easy for Him or for us. As I have said, it is hard to bring sinners out of their sin to God. Even after we have been actually converted and delivered and we're now turned to God and we're going toward Him, the sin still clings to us and we have to, it has to be broken loose. There are many illustrations that Scripture uses of this. Let's look at a few. There is the refiner's fire. He refines us as silver is refined. When you have silver that is found in the rocks, it has um, impurities mixed with it. How do you separate them? You put it in the refiner's fire. You heat it up until it melts. And the heavier material, which is the silver, goes to the bottom. And the other material comes to the top. And then you skim it off while it's molten. Then you do it again. Then you do it again. Then you do it again. The Bible talks about being seven times refined so that the impurities are separated. And it is painful, but it brings purification. It is painful to have to be separated from our deceitful lusts and sins because some of those sins are very dear to us. But at the same time, it is very freeing once it is done. And sometimes we have to be refined again. You become, you, 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 you're refined and you, you come away from some sin or lust that has entangled you for so long and then it comes back on you again. And the refiner's fire has to be, the, 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 the metal has to be heated up again. And how long it takes. But we go on and the refiner's fire helps us. Then there is the illustration of the threshing sledge. This was a heavy sledge that was dragged along to break apart the chaff from the grain and the wheat. So it was a way that they uh, separated the two. You don't want chaff with your grain. And of course, it grows in the, with the rest of the plant and everything. And so what they would do is they would put it on a threshing floor, a hard floor, and then they would get a threshing sledge, a heavy sledge dragged about with animals. Sometimes is how they did it in a kind of a circle. You know, they'd have it on a, 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 a spindle and they would go around and around. And, and the, the threshing sledge and the stomping would crush the grain so that the grain was separated from the chaff. And then they would get a winnowing fork and and throw the grain up in the wind. 
and all the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall down and they would gather it in and take it to market. This was the way it works. So uh, this is the idea that we need to be sifted. This threshing sledge. Uh, we, we, we have to be broken apart from our chaff. Perhaps here we have not so much what is sinful in us as what is worthless. The things that we treasure in such a way that they're idols to us and they keep us from God. We have things that are very dear to us that though they are not themselves sinful, they become something that we put in the place of God. And it becomes chaff. We have to be separated. It's painful to have them broken loose from us because we cling to us them because they're dear. Sometimes it's even our own health that maybe we have an idolatrous view of that. Or maybe it's um, of people, that relationships and things. And all of our relationships have to go sideways in order for us to be separated from putting them in the place of God. Or maybe it's our success or our riches that we have made idols of. But again, how glad we are once they are removed, once the separation has occurred. Then we can see our God in ways that we could not see Him when we had the idol in the way. And He is much better than the idol that we were clinging to and so relentlessly and refusing to, to let go. Then we love Him and we can delight. He is much better than whatever the idol was. Then there is pruning that is used in the Scripture. All of those beautiful branches in which we take pride. You know, look at, look at what I have done. Look at, my achieve, look at my success. Look at me. Look at who I am. They have to be cut back. We have to be cut back to the roots so that we will be humble before God. The achievements that we boast in have to be cut back because they have death in them. They have many impurities in them. And though they look alive to us, they are dead. Our pride has to be broken. Our sin has to be revealed and then cut away. You know, when you see someone pruning a rose bush, and why are you cutting all the branches down? Those long branches, you're cutting them down. They're cutting it back so that it can grow better, so that it can grow in a more healthy way. It's painful, is it not, to have that exposure. We don't like to be exposed. We don't like for the, the sin in us of things that we thought were good to be exposed. But it's at the same time delightful. Because again, our eyes are open. And isn't it true that once sin is exposed, yes, it's painful, but then you, you, there's a rejoicing in you because you know that God has shined light on you and that you know Him. And it brings joy in your heart, even though you lost something. If God is doing this work of refining and threshing and pruning, it shows that you are His child, that you are a true son who will remain in His house forever. If you're without this chastisement, then it shows that you're not. If you're only a servant or if you're an imposter in his house and not a redeemed son, you will, he will leave you to your own way. He'll, he'll let you go on with your pride. He'll let you go on with the chaff. He'll let you go on with whatever it is. You have hard things in your life. You may have a very hard life, even if you're outside of him. But you will not be made better by it. You won't be made better by the hard things. In fact, they will make you worse. They will make you harder toward God. They will make you more rebellious toward God. They will do the opposite effect of what the trials will do if they're chastisements from God that are sent on you as a son. You'll be, you'll be hardened and you'll grow even more vain in your pride and your glory 
more arrogant in your resistance to the true God. Do you know then his chastisement? That is the same as saying, are you God's child? Are you his son? Then if you do know his chastisement, do not be discouraged by it. That's what the exhortation is here. Don't be discouraged because you're a child of God and he's working in you if you're receiving this refinement and this breaking, this uh, threshing and this pruning. Uh, it's a pathway to God's eternal home in Christ. He is preparing you for glory. Just as a, a ball player has to prepare for the game, the coach has to run him through all kinds of hardships in order to prepare him, so the Lord is preparing us for glory. Rejoice that you are God's son. How can you be weary and discouraged when you remember that with whatever he may send upon you? The next remedy against weariness and discouragement follows closely with this. It will help you endure if you trust that your heavenly father knows the best way to train you. By the way, I use the word training there. And let me say that this word that is uh, translated discipline or chastening in our Bibles, it's also is translated training sometimes. It's uh, throughout this passage, it uses this word over and over again. I think it's nine times or something like that. And it refers to child training, actually. It, it's it's the, the language of the home, of training a child. God is our father and we're his children. So it involves more than chastisement. But because we're sinners, one of the principal things is chastisement. Because we have to be separated from our sins. So when God is training us, it involves chastening, it involves difficulties. Just like when you're um, you know, out of shape and all these things and you, you're, you're playing a sport, it's hard work. You have to, there are things that have to come off and things that have to go on. Uh, the, the fat has to come off and the muscle has to go on. But uh, this, is, this is the way that we, that we should understand this. It's, it's, it involves correction, but it's broader than that. Well, look at verse 9 and 10 then. It reads like this. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our own profit. Now when children with wise parents grow up, they often look back with appreciation on what their parents taught them, what they did for them. My father died when I was only nine years old. But I deeply appreciate the training that my mother gave to me. The discipline, teaching me to work and to be responsible and to care about others, and teaching me that God was important. She usually is, actually listens to our sermon from her retirement home in Atlanta. So if she's listening today, I'm very thankful. I hope she hears me. I'll talk to her this evening anyway and, uh, and tell her so again. But I appreciate more now than I did then. I respected her and submitted to her instruction at the time she was training me, but now I appreciate it even more. She still counsels me today, but the intense training that I had when I was a child was only for a short time until I outgrew the need for the, the parental chastisement and began to have my own responsibility and to go forward in that way. There wasn't that intense training that goes on. She did for a few days, it says, what seems, seemed good to her. That's what our fathers do. For the days that we're in our home, for, for a few days, they do what seems good. 
and then we go out. But with God, it goes on and on and on. How much more then should we respect our Heavenly Father who is intimately involved with training us and correcting us from the day that we're saved? And even before that, in a way, with our effectual calling, He begins to open our heart to the truth. He begins to show us the light. He begins to guide us in the way. Sometimes people begin even, there's a, there's a renewing and a repenting that goes on preliminary that's to conversion. But how much more then should we respect Him? We are foolish if we do not respect His wisdom. If we think that God doesn't know what He's doing and that He's needlessly causing us to suffer, we will grow weary in His way if we think that. How long will you go on in a way like that? If we think He doesn't know what He's doing, we will be discouraged about the refining and the threshing and the pruning. Why do I have to endure this again? Why the refiner's fire again? Why the threshing again? Why the pruning again? What arrogance is this? Do we know what is best for us more than our Heavenly Father? Are we the children to tell Him how to correct us and how to train us? Are we in the position to conclude that He should change His plan? That He should give us a different cross like somebody else's cross? A di different sufferings that, than somebody else's sufferings? Different refiner's fire? Different set of trials? That we would be better off with another course of training? Who are we to make such a decision? What idiots we are if we think that. How weary we will grow in His way if we do not subject ourselves to the Father of spirits and live. He knows exactly what to do. We need to yield sweetly to His plan. We sang Psalm 131 earlier. To, sing, to yield sweetly to His plan and know that He will do what is best for us even when we do not understand it. I have lived long enough to see even how He left things in my life that I wanted out. Things that were bad things that I wanted Him to, to take away from me. Why do I keep struggling with this thing? He left them there in order to deal with things that I could not see. Things that I was proud about that needed to be purified and purged. And He works in such a marvelous way. He knows what to do first and He knows what to do later. How amazing it will be to understand the wise course that He took with us when we are with Him in glory. And we can look back. We can do that somewhat now. We can look back and we can see, oh, now I see what God was doing in that situation. But let us submit to Him in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the burdens, in the midst of the pruning, in the midst of all of the affliction. Let's look to Him with confidence, lest we grow weary in the way and discouraged in our walk to glory. And now we come to the fourth remedy against weariness and discouragement. It will help you endure if you will keep before you the promised outcome of your heavenly Father's discipline. Verses 10 and 11 tell us what the outcome of His training is. For they indeed, talking about our fathers, so begin at verse 10 there, for, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the pre present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are told with frankness that no chastening seems to be joyful in the present. No, indeed, being separated from your sin and your idols and your pride 
is very painful and requires much suffering. That's one of the reasons that we grow weary and discouraged. There is pain and damage and loss, and ultimately it comes from the hand of our Heavenly Father. We sang it in Psalm 66. You have laid on our backs a burden. You have put this difficulty upon us. But I have noted already, it is for our good. Here we're told that it makes us partakers of His holiness. Holiness. Holiness is a word that, that seems like an ugly, a narrow, a frowning thing. We have pictures of that. It's presented that way in the movies always, you know, of holiness. It's, a, it's something that's, that's, that's not desirable. It's something that's very constricting. It's, very, it's not a pleasant thing. That's how it seems to sinners. Too often we think of it that way too as believers. But holiness is the most delightful thing of all. It is a conformity to our glorious God who is pure, beautiful, flawless, majestic, Glorious beyond all imagination, most loving, most gracious, most just and wise. It is conformity to Him, conformity to a Father like that. When He makes us holy, He makes us so that we conform to Him. We are holy as He is holy. And the more He does, the more we love it. Isn't that true? You become holy and ahead it looks bad. I've got to give up these things. What am I going to I'm going to be restricted. I'm going to be limited. And then you come to him and it's not. It's open. It's full. It's rich. It's fulfilling. We love it. The more we the more glad we are, the more full of joy and fullness we are. The more we are able to see him. See that you aspire to holiness and then you won't mind so much the refiner's fire. And just if, if holiness is before you, if that's your goal, then the refiner's fire will be welcome. The pruning will be welcome because you know what the end is. The threshing sledge will be a good thing. You'll want to be free of the idols. You'll want to be free of the sin. Our text also shows us that after these have done their work, it brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, righteousness. We become right. We become what we were created to be. There is something in us that knows we were made to be much more. That we were made to be much better than we are. There's a kind of yearning within for holiness, for satisfaction, for something that's lacking in there. But until we come to our Father's refining fire, threshing sledge and pruning knife, it is only a hollow ache that we have. It is there and it haunts us, but there's nothing really we, do, we can do about it. What peace we have when fruit of righteousness begins to appear. We know that we are finally on the right track. The word peace refers to the settled satisfaction that we have in the fruit that comes. We become content and joyful in His way as He works in us because we know now where we are going. We realize that it will be a grand thing when He completes His work. So we yield gladly to the way that He has made for us to come to Him. We are ready to bear the hard things and able to endure more and more as His work proceeds. If only we could see the filth that we are in apart from His work and the glory that we're going to because of His grace of where we're going, it wouldn't matter so much what He did along the way to bring us there. 
It takes a long time for fruit to ripen. We have to be patient. At first, we have fruit, new fruit that God gives us. And it's a good thing, but it's kind of sour. When fruit first starts to grow, it's kind of sour. It's kind of crabby. It's kind of hard and you know, hard, to, hard to chew and that not very palatable. But that fruit, for it to ripen, it takes time. It takes the course of our lives. And so as we go on in the way, we endure the hard things because we know what the outcome is. The peaceable fruit of righteousness in God's wise and gracious hands. So go on, Christian, go on. Learn, lean on Jesus to come up out of the wilderness of sin that you might enter into the Father's heavenly home. He is the one who brings us there by His grace. You will not fail if you put yourself in the way that your Father has provided. Jesus is the way that He has provided. Please stand and let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come to you with gladness and thanksgiving for you are our God and our Redeemer. You are our Father. You have made us sons by adoption. You have taken us out of the filth and slime of this world and you have called us to your house to live with you forever and ever. How could it be that we who, who wallow in the mire could come and live in the house of glory with our God? Oh Lord, we thank you that it's because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he is the one who has opened the way for us. He is the one who has gone to the cross and paid for our sins. He is the one who changes our hearts so that we can come and live with you forever. Oh, Father, I pray then that you would work in us as we now are in that way, if we are trusting in Jesus, we are in that way, we're going down that pathway, and we have to endure the fire and the purification, the uh, pruning, the threshing, all of these things, we, many other illustrations that could be used. And we pray, Lord, that as we endure these things, that we would do so with hope, that we would do so with gladness, that it is a mark that we belong to you, that you have not left us to wallow in the mire, that you're interested in refining us and purifying us. And may we know, Lord, that though it looks like we will be unhappy in your way, that if we are purged from these sins and if we are delivered from them, that it will make us unhappy and miserable, that it is actually just the opposite, that we will be set free. Why do we cling to our sin? It's because we think it is better. We cling to whatever kind of sin it is, whether it's the kind of, like, maybe we like to complain, maybe it's uh, lusts of sexual immorality or, or whatever it is. We, we are attracted to it and we cling to it. But Father, we pray that we would see clearly that you lead us into the way of holiness and that that is the way of the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That it is not something that is, is despicable to those who have it but it is something that is far better. We, we remember, Lord, as the Jews were taught in Hebrews that the shadows of the old covenant are replaced by the superiority of Christ, that we would realize that even more, that our sin and rebellion, when it is replaced by holiness in the way of Christ, is something that is very delectable, very delicious, very desirable. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have. We are in your hands, O oh Lord, we have put ourselves in the way. We have come to Christ and we have said, Lord, save me. Lord, deliver me from all evil. Take me, O Lord. Bring me into your house. Do the refiner's work. Do what is necessary 
Thank you that you have done all that is necessary for our forgiveness and that you have done all that is necessary even for us to be declared righteous, that Jesus Christ is our master and he has gone ahead of us. He is the forerunner and he will bring us with him. Oh Lord, do your faithful work, we pray, that we may go on and on in the way that we may endure, that we may not grow weary and discouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, God, receive the blessing of the Lord our God. May the God of all grace, who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.